Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Drawing Near to the Throne of Grace on deepening your prayer life. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. Lord, as we begin this seventh week on this topic of drawing near to the throne of grace, who are we? Who are we to draw near? And yet you have set up the most amazing opportunity for us to draw near to you, and that you welcome us with open arms, with a smile on your face, as we come in in the name of Jesus, to obey you by bringing our request to you and to praise your name, for you are worthy of all praise. Bless us tonight, open our hearts as we talk about these different things tonight. We draw near to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, week seven, questions and answers, the inquiring heart. We're not quite ready to inquire yet. We need to finish something from last week, so it's not on this week's little handout, but we, we began to talk about it. Uh, we were ta talking about praying big. We, uh, I uh, told you about the founder of the Navigators who began praying over a map of the United States and praying that God would use him in every country in every uh, state of the United States, and then we got, got a map of the, of the whole world and said, Lord, use our lives in the Philippines, in Uganda, and all these different places, and that many years later, uh, 50, 60 years later, the navigators are operating in about 120 countries of the world. And he would always call back when they would have a prayer meeting. He'd call back the next day if he was on the road and ask the secretary, well, what did they pray for? Did they... Did they ask for countries or peanuts? Did they ask for mountains or molehills? Encourage them to pray big because we have a big God. And it reminded me, we didn't get into it last week because we ran out of time, but those funny verses where Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And then in Matthew 21, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, that's when he made the fig tree wither, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. Now, have you ever thought about that verse? Now, one of the things that strikes me is, Jesus didn't do that with any mountains, Okay. You can tell that Jesus isn't into the demonstration of power just to show off. Uh, why don't we just, this will really impress people, you know. Why don't we move Mount Zion over two feet? Uh, you know, that, that would go down in the history books. But you notice that Jesus, everything Jesus did was with purpose. And also, he wants everything that we do to have a purpose too. He doesn't have his power flow through us just for us to show off or to attract attention to ourselves but to serve in his name, like the, the glove on a surgeon's hand. So as we think about this, what, well, well, what was he trying to say then? Here he gave, gave this tip on how to move mountains, and then he didn't move any. And then you read through the book of Acts, well, maybe they did. You know, maybe this was just something you do, you know, after the resurrection. Well, they didn't move any mountains either, in a literal sense. No, what, well, then, 
what is this? Is this sort of like an appendix, you know, in the body that uh, you wonder, well, what's that there for? And if it gets sick, you take it out. And so people think about this verse about moving mountains. Well, maybe it's like an appendix and you just need to kind of just set it over there on the side and we'll ask God about that someday. But I really think that uh, what he was talking about was that we don't limit, in the way we pray, we don't limit God with our littleness. What do I mean by that? We tend to pray from ourselves up. My concerns, my needs, and that's fine. We're supposed to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. Anything that's big enough to bother you is big enough to pray about. And the Lord uh, loves you, and he wants you to bring all of your concerns to him. But also, there's an aspect of praying from God back down toward us. Praying God-sized prayers instead of me-sized prayers. Now, still, they're important things to me, and they're things that I can't do. The fact that it's a small request in terms of quantity, I'm still praying about it because I can't do it. But thinking in terms of uh, praying from God down also is a fascinating thought. Praying according to his greatness. What are some mountains worth moving? Because there are a lot of uh, very, very large things in this world that are worth moving. The issue of abortion, the situation in Iraq, pornography, drug abuse, uh, the issue of purity among pastors. You hear a lot about that today. AIDS in Africa. So the situation recently in the Catholic Church with, uh, that they've been going through all these difficulties with the priests and everything. That's a, a big issue and, and, and reflects on Christianity. We shouldn't just think, well, I have an us-them mentality. Uh, we want them to be doing well in the Lord. The needs in the, in the black community. There's such a high population in the, in the prisons of uh, African Americans. That's a mountain that seem immovable. But God says they will move. The, it's the things that people have uh, commented on about Nicaragua. There, I mean, there's no infrastructure. Ben was saying that. I mean, that's just a mountain. I mean, uh, we can go down there all we want with our little teams. You know, it's like going to this blazing inferno with a squirt gun. You know, it says, well, I, this is just sort of discouraging. Am, am I just wasting my time? And I think we should realize from what Jesus says here, is that by giving us prayer and petition and commanding us to use it, he's put in our hands weapons of mass blessing, to use a more current phraseology. Weapons of mass, not destruction, destruction in terms of the enemy's things, but weapons of mass blessing. And we should use these weapons. Now, just to illustrate, I want to just mention a couple of mountains that have already moved. In our lifetime, we've seen the fall of communism. I mean, that was a mountain. That was... That was like, what, a third of the face of the earth was under this totalitarian regime that was planning on taking over the rest of the world. And it's pretty much history. The revival in Latin America, I mean, that, that, that whole continent was, was like almost shut off to the gospel for three or four hundred years almost. And now more people have come to Christ in the last 30 years than in the last four centuries in Latin America. Now, we're, we're sort of far from it, so we don't see it that much. But I lived in it for 16 years. I mean, it is breathtaking what God has done in the last 30 years in Latin America. A mountain has moved. You read about the abolition of slavery. That was something that just seemed impossible to change that situation. It was just so entrenched, so economically profitable in many different ways. And yet men of faith like William Wilberforce prayed and worked for that mountain to move, and it moved. And Jesus says, uh, you can move mountains too. Do you have any that you're focusing on? Now, we have mountains that we complain about. Oh, isn't it a shame what's going on in Africa? 
the AIDS crisis. Well, but is that on your prayer list? Lord, this is a mountain. You said this. I'm not making this up. I'm not being pretentious. I'm just responding to the need and what my God has said. And I would rather have believed you for too much than for too little. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I command that mountain to move and be cast into the depths of the sea. I would much rather God accuse us in the last day of having asked for too much, of having believed for too much. I have a friend who just felt a call to leave a, his, uh, his business as a re job recruiter to go to work with a, two other men that God has given them the vision of something needs to be done to share the gospel with every person with AIDS in all of Africa. That's their vision. And they're planning on moving that mountain. They have no idea. They're just asking the Lord to use them. Who knows what mountain God will give you, at least to pray for. Not just to lament, oh, isn't it terrible, the pornography. Oh, isn't, it, this is, isn't this situation awful? Well, are you praying? Are you lifting up the weapons of mass blessing and uh, doing your part? What are you asking God for? Do you have any God-sized prayer requests on your list? Are you asking Him for peanuts or for continents? Brother and sister, be it done to you according to your faith. We want to move into some of the questions that you've asked. Not that I have that many answers. I can just tell you what little I know uh, that came to my mind as we talked about these things. And some of them are pretty good questions. Uh, I wish I had better answers. But uh, the first question, these all came in the, the little survey we did a couple of weeks ago. So uh, the question is, is it possible to change God's mind? The questions were, since God doesn't change his mind, are my prayers a waste of time? If he's already going, knows what he's going to do and going to do it, then what possible need is there for petition? Praise, yes, be, that's always going to be appropriate. But what's the need to pray? Did Abraham change God's mind concerning Sodom and Gomorrah? Did Mary change Jesus' mind with changing the water into wine? Well, I'm just going to give you my take on this, okay? And you can think about it and see what you think. I did a Bible, just a little Bible study on it. We're just going to go through some of these verses and then make a couple of observations. Classic passage, Genesis 18. Now, when God devotes a half of a whole chapter to something in a, in a book where the whole fall of humanity is only a half a chapter, a Cain killing Abel and, and all of that, just a half a chapter. So it's something that you realize, well, for some reason... This is important to God and important to God to tell us about it. And so God tells him, I'm going down to destroy Sodom. And Abraham begins to argue with God. Now, do you think Abraham thought that you could change God's mind? Why would he have been arguing, right? He said, well, I know you know what you're going to do, so I'm just not going to say anything. I mean, God doesn't change his mind. Abraham says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Verse 25, far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Now isn't that part of the trick in this world? I mean, uh, it's always a mix. There are no simple situations. Somebody commits a crime, 
and yet there were other uh, terrible things done to that person. To what degree is the person guilty? Completely guilty? Partly guilty? It's very can get very confusing. This all the thing with Iraq. Well, in Iraq, there I'm sure there are many, many multitudes of innocent people. But if something happens, and there are a lot of innocents also will will get hurt. Uh, a lot of things in life are kind of uh, a, sort of a mix, and and so um, Abraham is saying, well, how high of a percentage does there need to be of people that really were trying to do what was right in Sodom? I mean, because then you send this judgment. And, and they'll be punished as though they were the wicked. He said, well, you can't do that, Lord. Surely you won't do that. And then he goes through the back and forth, back and forth. Well, how about if they're, God says, well, if they're 50, I'll spare the city. And there's this pause, and Abraham's thinking, heavens, what if we fall short by a few? How about if they're 45? How about if they're 40? How about if they're 30? He says, I'm just, just dust and ashes. He keeps reminding himself and God that he's really not anybody to ask this of God. And he finally gets down to, well, how about if they're just ten? And I'm pretty sure Abraham thought, surely they're ten. I mean, Lot is there and his, and his wife and his two daughters and they have boyfriends. Well, that's six. And surely they've had some sort of an influence on their neighborhood. <laughs> well, I guess not. <laughs> uh, there weren't even ten. Now, notice in all of this, Abraham never mentions Lot. He doesn't try to plead from a subjective and personally interested point of view, but from a justice and righteousness point of view. In the court of law, the lawyer can't say well, to the judge, well, this is my brother. Would you go easy on him? Is that going to work? <laughs> What's got Maybe the opposite. <laughs> so he never mentions Lot. He just says, Lord, won't you do what's right? And the Lord says, yes. And the Lord says, even if there are just ten out of a city of how many? Maybe a thousand? I'll still wait. I'll spare the city. And you get the idea of that, uh, the impression. And God wants to leave this impression that Abraham was able to sway the hand of God. Let's move on. Exodus. Yeah. Well, what God, he, uh, she said, I'm taping this, so I have to repeat all the questions. So that's why we'll try to say the questions. But um, he did destroy the city. But if there had been ten, he wouldn't have. And that was, that was the, the point on which he had swayed him. But on top of that, oh, this is really getting into something else, but it's very interesting to notice that that chapter in Genesis is a very good illustration of how God understands the intent of your prayer. He knows what's behind your prayer. He was praying that way not because he cared that much about the Sodomites, but because he cared about Lot. And so what did God do? He sent the angels without Abraham asking him to get Lot out of the city, to get those righteous out. Because Abraham had said, will you, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And God said, no. And, and, and so we see the angels go, and they're hurrying Lot along. And at the end of it, when Lot's out and, and the city's been judged and everything, it says, because God remembered Abraham and his prayer. And it doesn't say that God saved Lot primarily because he was righteous, but primarily because Abraham had prayed for him. Exodus 32.9 uh, is where they have sinned with the golden calf. And God says to Moses, get this now, this is interesting, isn't it? Now let me alone. <laughs> Don't get in the way. Moses, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Just like I did with Abraham, I can do with also with you. Just take a little longer. Setback of um, 
you know, 600 years. But, uh, but we'll start again with you, you, you know, your, your wife and children, and, and it'll multiply like that. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why doth thine anger burn against thy people? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind. Change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Again, on this same topic of the idea of changing his mind. Now, I'm not telling you where I'm going with it yet. I'm just kind of putting the stuff in the hopper. This is what you do in a Bible study. You try not to prejudge what you think the Scripture says. You just go and try and take a fresh look at it, and then you think about, now, what am I seeing? What is the Lord saying? Uh, and later on, in the, the next chapter, Moses says, Please forgive this people, and if not, Lord, blot my name out of the book of life. Again, that idea of an intercessor. And in the same way, Jesus interceded for us. And then finally, Jeremiah 26, 19, finally on this page anyway. Jeremiah 26, 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death, talking about a prophet that prophesied at the, Isaiah, I think it was, prophesied at the time of King Hezekiah. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. The Assyrians had come up against Jerusalem and, and besieged it and were going to overcome it. And they sent that, Reb Shika sends that letter, you know, it says you're all in a heap of trouble, you know, if you don't surrender. And they take the letter to Isaiah and they bring the letter in before the Lord and present it to the Lord. And what the prophet after that says, because you prayed, I will turn away this destruction. And it says, the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. Got three more, and there were more, I just uh, limited it. Now, this is particularly interesting in Hosea 11, 8, and 9. And God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? This was the northern kingdom. How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. This is right at the time. Well, we don't need to look at all of that. But what I want you to notice about this passage is that it so captures the, in a sense, conflict of things in God's heart. Not that there is a conflict, but this sort of turmoil in the heart of God. And we think, well, you know, we're created in His image. So uh, there are some things that are, that are similar, not because He's like us, but because we're like Him. And just in the same way, you have had times in your life when you had a bunch of thoughts banging in your head. Should I do this? Well, no. Well, I really would like to do this. No, I really don't want to do that. And you're back and forth and back and forth. And God shows us that uh, we're that way because and there's some aspects of Him that are like that also. Uh, his tremendous sense of justice that holds the whole, it's like the cement that holds the whole universe in place. And when things are unjust, the divine reaction to, to judge that and put things right, which is reflected in you too. When you see something that's terribly unjust, a child does something and it's just a misunderstanding, the parent slaps them. Don't you just want to get right up out of your chair and do whatever you can to, to right that wrong? Well, that's uh, part of the reflection of God in our hearts. And here we see this, this turmoil in God's heart going on and him coming to a decision. In Amos 7, I've just got the first three verses here, 
But it says, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? So he sees this, this plague that's coming in a vision. He sees it in a vision, but it's on its way. That God has planned to send to discipline the, the nation. And as the prophet sees it, and he says, this is just too much. He says, we, this won't just discipline us. This will finish us off. And it says, the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And Jonah 3.9 who knows, God may turn and relent. Now, this is the king of Nineveh speaking. This is not the prophet or anything, you know. This is, we're getting a little insight into the theology of the king of Nineveh. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish, shall not perish. And you think, well, what is the king of Nineveh? No, I mean, he's not going to get even one right, you know, on the theology test. And then it says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And so once again, we see something that looks like a change. Now, what are we going to do with this? <clears throat> well, I want to illustrate it a couple of ways and just give you a couple of thoughts. But my concern here is not primarily to clear up all mysteries and that we can go out and say, well, I have all of the answers. My primary concern is that we be faithful to the Scriptures and that we take from the scriptures what God wants us to do with it. Okay? And other things are noble efforts, but we're not going there. Is Jesus God, or is he man? If by saying he is God, and therefore he cannot be man, or he is fully man, and therefore he cannot be God, then that we call that heresy. Is there one God, or are there three gods, or persons in the Godhead? Well, if there are three, then there can't be one, some would say. And if there's one, there can't be three. And we say, no, you've got to go with both. Why? The book says it. The same with the person of Jesus. And I want to propose to you something tonight, that this Bible says both of these things tonight. Our tendency is to say, God is immutable and he doesn't change, and that is totally true. But if you take that truth to say, then fatalism must be true then all things are determined, and so prayer makes no difference. You have stepped out of biblical Christianity. He says, I can be entreated. He says that when my wrath and judgment is going out toward a place, by your prayer and supplication, there are times when it can be stopped, even if it's just temporarily, as in many of these cases. But that your prayers do make a difference because they're based on the promises of God. We tend to shrink God down and try to resolve all mysteries. And when we do, we always end up without all the pieces because they don't all fit in our head. And in the same way, we have learned to live with the tension between he is God and he is man and he is one and he is three. We also, to honor the Lord, we need to live with the tension between he is completely unchangeable and yet our prayers move his hand. And that somehow he is also sovereignly involved in that and I can't explain it. But when I go to prayer, I know that what God wants me to believe with all my heart is, is that my prayers make a difference. And that's not making it up. I'm not inventing that. He said it. And if he said it, it is the truth. So I don't know if I've just complicated your life or not, but that was the first question. And the rest aren't that hard. <laughs>
How do you keep a balance between praise and petition? The questions asked were, is praising God a distinct activity, separate from all else, uh, separate from requests, and what constitutes an excessive focus on petition during prayer? But they're all sort of along the same lines. Our tendency is to try to grasp things in terms of laws and recipes. It sort of boils it down and sort of puts handles on it. What do I have to do? You know, do I put my left foot here or does it go over here? And then where does my right foot go? Uh, how, how much do I need to... Well, let's just say I'm going to pray for 12 minutes. How much of that should be praise? Three and a half minutes is enough? Uh, should I go... Should I take a, a statistical analysis of the Lord's prayer? as well, now there are about... As far as all the words... There are about six requests. Now, do I go with the number of requests or do I go with how many words there are? And is the wor are the words in Greek or in English you know, that I'm going to weigh? Well, the Bible says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In the same way, if you try to apply that to your romantic life, you're going to run into problems. This is the day and this is the time that I am supposed to give you, how many was it, five roses or was it six? You know, and so you've got all of these things in your mind. And I'm supposed to give this, and what am I supposed to say? Oh, um, you are, you are a wonderful person. I mean, now you see that that totally takes it out of the realm of relationship and spirit, and puts it and kills it in the area of law. And but why do we do that? Because we think that's uh, what will get approved. You do it according to the law, and that'll be they'll like that. <laughs> say it loud. When you, when you see Leviticus and how explicit right. is specification, then that would tend to make us. Right. That's the Old Covenant. And that law, the Bible says in Galatians, was meant as a school teacher to bring us to grace in Christ. Through Moses, we, we had the law. And in Christ, we received grace and truth. And so what I want to suggest is, is that a better, uh, it's not as though there are no laws or there are nothing right and wrong. I'm just saying that in something like this, it would be one thing if also if the Bible had said in the New Testament, uh, you need to 30% praise, 70% petition, but doesn't. So we would be inventing things. We would be trying to extrapolate and guess on things that God hasn't said. But what God has said is he's, he says he is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So he doesn't say any, it's not formulated in with a whole huge book like Leviticus in the Old Testament of, of the exact steps that you have to go through in order to please God. And so but I want to give you just a very, very simple thing that helps me. It may help you. Because I've also wondered about this, and I wanted to get beyond worrying about it, if that was okay. <laughs> but from what I've seen in terms of uh, the New Testament and how the Lord expresses what he wants. You know, but it says in Ephesians, we're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And it's a process. Then in our prayer time, we should think in terms of our prayer time, not primarily in terms of a list or activities, or I've got to cover these bases. But it's uh, my face-to-face -face time with him. As he said about Moses, I speak to Moses uh, as a man face-to-face. -face. And so when we are, our, our first thought as we move into the prayer time, to look up or pray up at least, if you get your head bent, well, at least think up and connect with him as a person, thinking about, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking to the ceiling or to the wall or to myself. I'm not just meditating on a list. I have just established contact with the greatest person in the whole universe. 
heavens. You know, well, that kind of quiet you down for a bit. But just to seek his face and respond to him and talk to him. And then as you sense that you have connected with him. Now some people are more sensing and feeling and, you know, again, most of what I say, I want to just give a little caveat that if your type of personality is totally different, don't worry about it. I'm just giving some suggestions. These are not laws. These are things that will be more helpful to some people than to others. But uh, to spend that first time, whatever it is, if you have 10 minutes, I don't know, just start off with him. Uh, he already knows the things you're going to ask. So in the final analysis, it's more important to connect with God than it is to pray in a certain way on everything on your list. First him. And then as you are sensing communion with him and you know you focused on him and praised him for whatever time that is then you say well Lord what are we going to do today we got my list and my weapons of mass blessing let's do something because prayer is our teaming up with God where he works through the things he's put on our hearts the burdens in our hearts and the desires and it's time to change the world through prayer Third, how do I keep my mind from wandering? How to stay focused? Now, we've already talked about that in another one, so I won't stay too long on it. But things like using music, either on headphones or if you're in a place where you can put it on tape player, walking around or, or at least changing your positions. Maybe you kneel some, stand some. Some people like to, if it's a carpet, lie down. Using a list is very helpful. And what I just said a minute ago, first trying to find the Lord. But the idea is to be active. It should be the, our attitude in this should be that this is the most, I am most alive when I'm in my time in prayer. Picture God being there. Uh, I may have mentioned in another one that one thing that helps me is to just back up to the wall and just imagine God filling up the whole room, you know, and so there's less and less room for me. I'm sort of smushed against the wall. And I realize God's much bigger than the room, but he's certainly as big as the room. And so I'm, I'm right there, and, and I, I get all just kind of pushed up against the wall. I know this is weird. I'm sorry. But, uh, and then I think, well, if God just shifted a little in his seat, he'd smush me like a bug. i say, Lord, don't move. <laughs> You're going to kill me. <laughs> but just the sense to focus on him, to realize how big he is and how very, very near he is, we're, that we're not sending telegrams. Did you have a question, Ken? Praying out loud keeps you awake. The praying out loud keeps you awake. Uh-huh. Walking, too, because when you fall, if you go to sleep, you fall, you hit the ground. And uh, the mind, you'll notice, the mind wanders to the degree it's not adequately impressed. And I realize to the degree I can be more impressed with the one who's most impressive, to that degree my mind won't wander. There have been situations in your life where with a person of the opposite sex or with something that you are, you're a collector and you happen to find the most beautiful thing of whatever it is you collect, well, you're not going to sleep at that moment. Your mind is not wandering. Why? Because the mind suitably impressed doesn't wander. Another key on being able to focus your attention on the Lord is the issue of fear. Nothing rivets your attention like fear. And that's one reason why I think he, say, he says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've been at sleep one night and been awakened by a, a bump? Good grief, what was that? Can you fall right back to sleep? Are you kidding? 
You know, that's like 400 cups of coffee. And, uh, you know, the wife is poking the guy, you know, you go see what it is. I don't think it was anything. And he's thinking, do I, where's that fat, you know? I mean, but every, we're not worried about going to sleep. And we are totally, your, your mind now is you're just listening for the next bump, right? And so as you grow also in your fear of the Lord, thinking how near he is, how great he is, that can also rivet your attention. Fourth, uh, God answers according to our belief, one person wrote. What about praying for the ability to believe? This comes from the passage in, of Scripture in Mark 9:24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And it's perfectly fine to ask for anything good. And faith is good. And so it's perfectly fine to ask for faith. It's also good uh, any time you think about it to ask him to give you the Holy Spirit. Not that you don't have the Holy Spirit. In it, but Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so I'm always asking, Lord, whatever that is, <laughs> give me more of that. Fill me. Uh, control me. I know I, I, I thank you for the Spirit that's in and around me, but I need you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, but this issue of faith, you know, God answers according to our belief. I want to just make one clarification. Doubting is calling God a liar. That's the problem. That's why unbelief is such a big problem. It's an accusation against the character of God. Because God has said things very clearly. He has said, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. And so we're about to pray, but... Is he going to answer or not? Maybe my prayers don't make a difference. And so what you're basically saying by doubting is say, God, you're not a liar, are you? Are you a liar? No, you wouldn't be. Maybe you are a liar. Don't you see how offensive that is to God? And as we understand that that's what doubting is, then we think, well, well what's the way out of that? It's pretty simple. What has God said? And I'm just going to choose to believe that he's not a liar. Not that, that hard, is it? In Numbers 19.11, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So really your choice isn't uh, one, frankly, just of, of doubt or unbelief. It's really a decision, does God exist at all or not? Because if he does exist, it makes sense that he wouldn't be a liar. That he'd tell the truth. And if this is what he said, and he exists, then I can believe him. But if you're still stuck with unbelief, then just ask the Lord, because his, his mercy is over all of us, and, uh, and he longs to help us at our point of need. So if you struggle with unbelief, yes, uh, by all means, ask the Lord to help you. What about waiting on an answer to prayer? How about this idea of having to wait? We have the illustration of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the friend of God, and you think, well, I'm sure if God has a friend, he would take particularly good care of him. You take particularly good care of your friends. You're not just trying to be mean to them or your children. Uh, you have a son, and you, he comes home from school, and he's hungry. Well, you're not going to wait 30 years to, before he, you give him anything to eat. He won't last that long. He won't last another 30 minutes without something to eat. So the, but the idea of timing, you think, well, but I've asked for this and it doesn't seem like anything is happening. Don't you think Abraham had the same feeling? 
God made a promise, and God's not a liar. You will be a multitude, and they will come forth from your own body. How long did he wait for the first little bit of an answer for that? 25 years, a quarter of a century. Man, that's waiting, isn't it? I don't know that I've waited for anything for 25 years. And that, that was the main thing I wanted and, and waiting. I mean, when it's not something very important to you, have you noticed it doesn't, it's not hard to wait for it? But when it's something very important to you, it's very hard to wait for it. And this is the single most important thing in Abraham's life. And so really those 25 years is more like, I mean, if they say, any day now, you're going to get a million dollars. Any day, any day, any day, you know, one year, two years, three years, any day, any day. I mean, you're, 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 your waiter is getting fatigued. You know, I, you know I, I thought it was a strong waiter, but uh, uh, being able to wait, but uh, this is exhausting. Thinking every day, maybe this is the day that, uh, in this case, that Sarah would get pregnant. And he was such an Olympic waiter that uh, it's recorded in Romans 4. This, uh, turn in your Bible to this. This is such a good passage on him waiting for the Lord to answer this prayer. Let's just start in verse 18 of Romans 4. This whole chapter is about Abraham and how he figures into the justification by faith. But in verse 18, in hope against hope, in other words, it was hopeless, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. Uh, verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. He said, boy, this looks bad. Some of us are getting more and more into that these days, contemplating how bad it's getting. Now as, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, so that was uh, two, not just one problem, two problems, two mountains. Yet with respect to the promise of God, what God had said, he fixed on what God had said, and he didn't just take into account the reality of the situation, didn't close his eyes to the reality, but it was just as real to him that the God of the universe has made a promise. And he can't lie. He can't lie. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. The further it got, the crazier he got to believe it was going to happen anyway. Don't you know people around him were saying, this is really strange. This poor guy. He's, it must be first stages of dementia. It's just less and less likely, more and more impossible that this could happen. And to hear him talk, you'd think that God was still going to do this. And God says it wasn't insanity. It was faith. Giving glory to God. Why? Because God was going to do it. Already thanking God. Oh, this is wonderful. The Lord is going to do it. Being fully assured, not by sight, but by faith, fully assured that what God had promised, He was able also to perform. And it took 25 years for that. Another promise God had made Him was, I'm going to give you this whole land, whole countryside. By, and we looked at uh, one of the other weeks, by after a hundred years of waiting on that promise, you thought the first one was long. A hundred years, he dies at age 175. All that he had of the whole land that God was going to give him was enough room to bury himself and Sarah. Wow, you know. <laughs> Most people, when they have aspirations of real estate, they're not just thinking of the funeral plot, you know. <laughs> kind of, I, that has a single use, you know, and a sort of a terminal one. But we, we realize in this you think, well, what was God so impressed about with Abraham? Was it that he had a son? Well, people have that, do that all the time. That, I mean, it was something that he had it at that age, but, but uh, that happened because of what God did. That wasn't anything with Abraham. That was just the intervention. God is not impressed with miracles, by the way. 
We are impressed by miracles. God is impressed by faith. The only times it says Jesus marveled was when somebody really had faith. And so what, what did God marvel about with Abraham? That he was willing to believe and believe and believe without seeing anything. All he had was what God had promised. And that was all he needed. And so for Abraham, apparently, it didn't matter when it happened, just as long as it happened. Now we are very time conscious, and, and, and when do we want things? Right this red hot minute, right now. That's one of the things with moving mountains, by the way. There are a lot of implications once a mountain moves. There's real estate that's now covered up. There was, you know, maybe somebody's house under there, right where you move the thing. And the, the, the way the rivers go and the rainfall, and it changes a whole bunch of things when something that big moves. And so when we pray about big things also, there are thousands of implications that we couldn't possibly take into account. But God can. And that's why also timing is a very significant thing, and he takes it into account. And he says, don't worry about it. You know, you have made the request. Heaven has been set in motion. I can assure you of that. And in the Lord's time, all things that should be done will be done. And you will realize at the end, God used me. He flowed through me to do great things. What about the need for multitudes to pray for a given consideration? There can't be a magic number. Why wouldn't it be enough for just, uh, for just one person to pray about something? I like this verse in Leviticus 26.8. It says, five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Notice, if five are chasing a hundred, it's the proportion of one to twenty. So every one is chasing twenty. And they're all running. But, we get up here, a hundred will chase ten thousand. Do the math. How many is each one chasing? Come on now, your calculator generation. Chasing a hundred, right? Each one is chasing a hundred. What happened? Synergy. <laughs> you know, the more there were the bigger the impact they had. And that is one of the things that uh, is very interesting. But it didn't say that five or one would chase 10,000. There is some sort of a proportionality. But we realize that when God is on your side, you can be a whole lot fewer and get a whole lot more done. But that the Lord does work through people. And just, as though, just in the same way that great evil are put together by a great number of sins, uh, great righteousness and great things are also done by many people trusting in God. And so that's why the bigger the thing, often the more important it is to get more people praying about it. Uh, one said, I struggle with praying. I pray for something and God does the opposite. Pray for that somebody would be healed and they die. Uh, I know God is sovereign, but it takes the wind out of my sails. How can we reconcile? Do you realize how much trouble we'd be in if God always did exactly what we say every time? We operate with such a high level of ignorance that we could be dangerous. I think it's important to know that when we pray, I, I believe that the, that the best way of looking at prayer, because God has said He's commanded us to pray according to our desire. Once we have surrendered completely to Him, and we are abiding in Him, and His Word is abiding in us. He says, now I will release you to pray according to your desires. It'll never be perfect, but we've really got something going here to team up together. 
And it brings great glory to God when he works through our desires, since Satan worked through our desires initially to cause all this mess we're in. And so prayer is our starting point is where we are because we can't start anywhere else. And he says, pray according to your, to your desire. But our desires and our ability to know and discern situations has its limits. So to the degree he can use any of what we desired, he will. And then beyond that, it switches over. To, if, he has a, if it bumps into a greater plan, it switches over into that. So we know from what he has promised, he will either give us exactly what we have asked for or something better. Now, in terms of praying for somebody to get well and they die, it's important to realize that no lives are abbreviated. With a sovereign God, the days of every human being are already fixed. So we don't have to think, oh, what a shame their lives were cut short. They weren't cut short. That was the number of days ordained for them. And our praying for that will not necessarily and will not change that. So we are surrendered to his will. But that doesn't mean that we're fatalistic. Say, well, uh, if they'll die, they die. If they live, they live. God says, no, no, no. I want you to pray. Pray according to your desire. But when you realize that you've bumped into a bigger plan of God, then from that point out, you just trust me. And later on, maybe I'll explain it to you. Since he has put in us the deep desire to understand things, he probably also has a plan to satisfy that understanding someday. God also knows why you ask for what you ask for. We never ask for things so much in themselves. Would you pray for this person to live longer so that they could maybe fall into a grave sin or have an even greater amount of suffering? No, if you knew that, you, you, maybe you'd pray differently. But God, you don't know that. The, the Lord knows we pray for things because we want good things to happen. And when we have prayed for something, God says, oh no, that would be a disaster. I mean, uh, the good, good try, you know, but you totally missed on that one. Uh, we're we're going to need to do this another way. But we're still, like he did with Lot, God knew the original intent of Abraham's prayer was to save Lot's life. And even though that wasn't even exactly what Abraham had prayed, God knew that's what he was getting at. And he answered that prayer. And yet still kept his holiness intact. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.